Thank you, Luke. Luke, is this your Bible? Okay, as you guys are uh, taking your seats again, uh, I wanted to let you know a, a couple things before we dive into God's Word this morning. Number one, you'll see some uh, little seat cushion things. They've kind of been used as uh, holders for the, the lyrics, the song sheets, but you can also use those personally. Uh, our brother Ben, who is not here with us today because he is with his family, and I know a couple other families are gone because of Thanksgiving. Um, he is the one that supplied these for us. He loves them. He sits on them every Sunday, uh, and he sits on one, not all of them. Um, and uh, he said that he enjoys it, number one, because they are comfortable, but number two, apparently the, the seats are very cold. I actually don't even sit on them because I'm standing for singing and then I'm standing for preaching, so I don't ever sit down on them, and uh, he said they're very cold. So feel free to grab one. There's a couple up here. Feel free to sit down on those. Uh, those are for you to u- use. Uh, secondly, I also forgot to mention that we are uh, having a baby dedication here in a couple weeks. Um, we have three families that uh, have contacted me or I've been able to talk with, but I know that there's other families that have just had little babies. So if you uh, are desiring, baby dedication is not, uh, we, we don't baptize babies, um, and we are not making the claim that by dedicating them to the Lord that they are inherently going to be saved a baby dedication, as we'll talk about when we get to it in a couple weeks, uh, is talking through the issue of us as a church community saying that we are rallying around the family, that we're going to encourage the family, we're going to pray for their precious little one. We are dedicating the life of that precious little one to the Lord as he would use for his glory, as he would see fit to use in his will according to his purposes and plans. And we just want to not neglect that family and be praying for that family and be ministering to that family. So it's a dedication from us as a church to the family, from the church, uh, from the family to the Lord. Uh, so if you would like to be a part of that, like I said, we have three families that are currently going to be a part of it, but I know that we have others with uh, little children. I don't know if they've been dedicated uh, yet at other churches, but I just wanted to make that available uh, to everybody. All right, with that being said, that's a terrible segue to go to the Bible. So let's uh, take your song sheet and let's go back and sing that last chorus, just a cappella t- together. None above him. This is so perfect to, to sing right before we talk about the trials of Christ. As he is on trial before people, he's actually the one that's trying them. They are on trial before him. He is not the victim. He is the victor. So let's sing this together. None above him, none before him, all of time in his hands. None above him, none before him, all of time in his hands. For his throne it shall remain and ever since. All the power, all the glory, I will trust in for my God is the ancient of days. Father, we will trust in your name and trust in your purposes because you are the ancient of days. You are working for our greatest good. You are working for your greatest glory. And we trust you in the midst of the chaos, in the midst of the pain, in the midst of the suffering. And God, I know just even this last week with prayer requests that were shared, with conversations that we've had, This world is full of suffering and people are weeping, people are mourning, people are in pain. This world is also filled with many moments of rejoicing and all of those moments, all of time is in your hands. And so we will not fear, even though the dread of night would come close to us, it will never overtake us because you are on your throne, you are in control and we trust you. And Father, I pray this morning as we stare at your son that we would trust you as we see him trusting you and entrusting himself to you. So I pray that you would encourage our hearts, challenge us this morning, give us grace to behold our Savior. We pray in his name. Amen. All right, now go ahead and take your Bibles out and turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. While you guys are turning there, just give me the three goals for why we're going through this sermon series. What are the three goals that we're trying to accomplish as we go through? Number one, no. Number two, apply. Number three, 
grow. So we want to know the Passion Week. We want to know it through and through. We want to know every detail as much as we can. Some of you have been asking about the things that I've been skipping over. Uh, one of these days, we'll go back and we'll do a Passion Week series part two. We can't go through every detail or else the Passion Week series would take months to do. And uh, we only have eight weeks to do it, so we are going to have to necessarily skip over things. But uh, the things that we're staring at are just absolutely Christ-exalting, God-glorifying uh, events. And so I want you to know them. I want you to be able to rehearse them in your mind, to feel as if they happened just yesterday. I want us to work on applying historical narrative. As we read stories, how do we draw implication from the stories? How do we draw application from historical narratives? And then finally, always, when we gather, we want to grow in our love for Jesus. We don't want to just grow our knowledge and, and know more and be happy with that. We want to grow our love and affections for Christ. Last week we studied Silent Wednesday that led us into Thursday because everything that happens on Thursday is an argument for what's gone on on Silent Wednesday. And that took us to the Garden of Gethsemane and the Garden of Gethsemane ends really Thursday night and Friday morning. Uh, we don't really know when time-wise. It was either really late Thursday night or early Friday morning, but just to delineate it in my mind, I put the uh, arrest of Jesus just Friday morning uh, that the trials will begin. So Jesus is arrested by the officers, by the religious leaders, by the Roman guards that had been sent and deployed for this purpose. But even in that moment, as they are arresting him, remember he, we talked about this a bunch last week, he's arresting them. Who do you seek? He goes after them. He's not a coward. He pursues them. And he's going to be led away on Good Friday before the sun even comes up. He's going to be led away for his trials. And he's going to be tried six different times, three Jewish, three Roman. We're going to go through all of them, some faster than others. But I have us in 1 Timothy chapter 6 because Paul actually tells Timothy something very beneficial for us and somewhat confusing that's going to be the rudder that navigates and helps us navigate our current text this morning. 1 Timothy chapter 6 Beginning in verse 13, Paul writes to his son in the faith, who is a pastor at a church in Ephesus. He says, I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who testified or gave the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you, Timothy, keep the commandment without stain or reproach, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the proper time. He who is blessed and the only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. But verse 13 tells us, Paul is telling Timothy that what Christ Jesus testified and confessed before Pilate is something that will enable him to run his race well. So I have two questions right off the top. Number one, wasn't Jesus silent? What, what did he say? I mean, Mark chapter 15, verses 3 through 5, the chief priest began to accuse Jesus harshly. Pilate questioned him again, saying, do you not answer? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so Pilate was amazed. Uh, it wasn't Jesus silent. So what confession did he make? I thought he kept his mouth shut the whole time. Question number two is, if he did open his mouth, what in the world did he confess to? Because he's innocent. What did he confess to before Pilate? What did he say that he had done? Who did he say that he was? Five times in the Gospels, we read that Pilate wants him to go free. Pilate declares explicitly, I find no guilt in this man. This man is innocent five different times. Luke chapter 23, verse 4, I find no guilt in this man. Luke 23, verses 14 through 15, I find no guilt in this man. Luke 23, verse 22, uh, what evil has this man done? I find no guilt in him. John 19, verse 4, I'm bringing him out to you so that you may know I find no guilt in him. And John 15, verse 5, take and crucify him yourself because I find no guilt in him. So what in the world did he confess to? The, the question for us this morning is, how did Jesus handle himself while he was on trial before these six different people groups? 
because Paul is telling Timothy that there is something in the way that Jesus handled himself specifically before Pilate that will help him live his Christian life and help him fight the good fight of faith and help him to keep the faith to the end. There's something to be seen in the trials that will help you and help me to finish our race well. So that's the question before us this morning. We are going to learn from Jesus as we stare at the way that he handled himself before Pilate. But in order to do that, we have to go back to the very first trial, which is in John chapter 18, verse 12. So turn there, John chapter 18, verse 12. And then I will just quickly ask God's blessing on our time. Father, we turn in our Bibles to your word, to to sections in your word, because we would be lost without it. It is a lamp unto our feet. It is a light unto our path. Without it, we are walking in darkness. It is our source of truth. It is truth itself, because you are truth incarnate, even as we will see this morning. And you are the word made flesh. So, Father, we turn because we worship you. We turn because we know our own opinions, our own ideas, our own even convictions that might come outside of your word. They're not enough to enable us to walk holy before you. They're definitely not enough to enable us to reconcile ourselves with you. And so, Father, we turn to you in humility as those who are poor in spirit, bankrupt in soul. We have nothing to offer you. And yet we know that you welcome us. You encourage us to come into your presence. So we turn in your word with joyful anticipation, with expectation of what you will teach us. And Father, this is so appropriate. Even as we think about where we are in our climate, in human history, in our culture, It's such a beautiful picture of how your word is relevant to us today. So, Father, we pray every Sunday, Holy Spirit, open our eyes that we would behold wonderful things from your law. And that is a a prayer of humble admission in our own hearts that we cannot see what we are supposed to see if you don't do the work to open our eyes to see it. So we come before you and we beg you to open our eyes to see. Show us Christ. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. So Friday morning, we're going to split Friday up into several sections, several different sermons, but Friday morning begins with six different trials. Do you remember, the religious leaders want to get Jesus killed before the crowds wake up. That's their goal. That's their desire. They were unable to do that on Thursday night because Jesus had kept the Passover Seder, the celebration, the room where it was going to be. He had kept that secret, so they weren't able to arrest him right then and there. It took hours for the Seder to happen. It took hours for him to go uh, to the Garden of Gethsemane. Maybe it took another hour or two for them to actually get there and arrest him. So they are going to have to try him early in the morning on Friday. And they are going to ultimately, three Jewish trials, that last trial is going to ultimately end right when the sun is just barely starting to peek through the sky. But the first of the three Jewish trials begins with a man named Annas. Annas is the ex-high priest. He's the high priest emeritus, if you will. He is the father-in-law of Caiaphas. He was the high priest from A.D. 6 to A.D. 15. Uh, He had many generations, many other of his own family members who were high priests. There was a lot of corruption involved with the office of the high priest. And he enabled Caiaphas, his son-in-law, to become high priest. So he's he's the ex-high priest, but kind of like what we would say today with an ex-president, we'd still say Mr. President, right? If George W. Bush were here, I would say, hello, Mr. President. Same thing back then. You're once the high priest, always the high priest. And so Annas is going to try Jesus. And I say try very loosely because it's more of a placeholder than anything else. It's in John chapter 12. Actually, John is the only person that tells us about this trial. If we didn't have this, tri- this uh, book of the Gospel of John, we wouldn't know about this trial at all. John writes in verse 12 of John 18, the Roman co- cohort and the commander and the officers of Jews arrested Jesus and bound him, and they led him to Annas first. For he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest at that time, that year. Now Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it was expedient for one man to die on behalf of the people. Then the story of Peter denying Christ, drop all the way down to verse 19. 
The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. And Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I've spoken nothing in secret. Why do you question me? Question those who heard what I spoke to them. They know what I said. So he's not, Jesus is not being rude or sarcastic. He's just simply asking the questions. Why are you asking me? You can, if you want to know what I've been teaching, you can go to the crowds and talk to them. But when he had said this, verse 22, there was an officer standing nearby and he struck Jesus saying, is that the way that you answer the high priest? And Jesus said to him, if I've spoken wrongly, testify of the wrong, but if rightly, then why do you strike me? And after that, Annas sent Jesus bound to Caiaphas. That tells us that Annas does not view Jesus as being innocent because he's still bound in chains to Caiaphas. That's really all the Annas trial is. There are silly questions that are posed just because uh, Annas is trying to buy time for the entire Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court of Israel, to gather. Now, the Supreme Court of Israel knew that something was going to be going down on this day. But I'm sure some of them, of the 70 people that are on that Supreme Court, I'm sure some of them said, yeah, right, that's not going to happen. I'm sure some of them probably thought, uh, you know what, wake me up when it happens, send some runners to tell me. I'm sure there were people that were still asleep. And so when Jesus is arrested, bound, and brought before Caiaphas, Caiaphas says, hey, Dad, can you just hold Jesus for a second while we send some runners out to get the whole Sanhedrin because they need to make a verdict. They need to pass down the verdict so that we can take it to Pilate. It won't just do for Annas or Caiaphas on their own to say this is what's going on. This needs to look above board. This needs to look like we've done a good job investigating. So Annas says, sure, I'll, I'll watch him. So he asks a couple really dumb questions. Jesus sees through the dumb questions and asks him uh, questions about his questions. So Annas is just a placeholder. And as time is being bought for Caiaphas to assemble the whole uh, Sanhedrin, I think that Annas is probably looking around. You know, he probably asks a question. So Jesus, uh, you know, tell me about what you taught your disciples. Are we ready yet? No? Uh, okay. Uh, you know, why, why were you up in the upper room? Are we ready yet? No? Okay. Uh, he's probably looking. And then Caiaphas finally gives him the thumbs up. Yep, we're good to go. Okay, uh, go to Caiaphas. Bound in chains. I think you're guilty. And then he goes to Caiaphas. Turn to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14, verse 53, tells us that they were waiting for the, the chief priests and the scribes to gather together. Mark chapter 14, verse 53, they led Jesus away to the high priest, this is now Caiaphas, and all of the chief priests and the elders and the scribes gathered together, or literally were gathering together. They were in the process of gathering so that's why I, I would say that Annas is a placeholder to let the, the uh, Sanhedrin gather. Once enough of them have gathered, trial number two starts. So trial number one is Annas. Trial number two is Caiaphas. Trial number two is Caiaphas. And Caiaphas's job is to get an accusation from Jesus that they can take, the Sanhedrin can take to Pilate. There's a lot of ink that on this. This is the whole, who do you uh, claim to be? This is the, are you the Christ, the Son of the living God? This is false witnesses being brought in. By the way, this entire trial, this in, these, these three trials that are before Annas, Caiaphas, and the whole Sanhedrin are totally illegal. Let me give you just eight reasons why they are illegal. There are numbers of reasons why these trials are illegal, but just eight. Number one, these trials are held in the wrong place. They're held in a private home. There's a courtyard. Remember, Peter's in the courtyard watching this happen. So this isn't held in a public place, in a temple precinct where other witnesses could come in and easily testify. This is held in a private house, doors closed. Number two, it's held at night when it's difficult, if not even impossible, to subpoena witnesses. Uh, the, the law had stated very clearly that when the sun goes down, the courts are done. No more trying anybody when the sun goes down. There's no record, actually, in the Bible that any attempt was made to hear witnesses that would testify on behalf of Jesus. And that would high-handedly violate the most basic canon of Hebrew jurisprudence in its entirety. Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 6, which is quoted all over the place, on the basis of two or three witnesses, a thing will be confirmed. And they're not going to have any of that. Number three, it was illegal because it was convened with undue haste. Number four, it was illegal because defense witnesses are to appear first. 
defend this man. He is innocent until proven guilty. And there were absolutely no witnesses for the defense that were allowed. Instead, false witnesses are brought in and paid to testify against Jesus. Number five, we have no record of a careful warning of the witnesses concerning the results of perjury. Number six, attempts were made to force Jesus to bear witness against himself, to testify against himself. This goes against Jewish law. This actually also goes against our own laws and the, the laws of our land, the Fifth Amendment. This is why we have a Fifth Amendment. You can't get a criminal to testify against himself and compel them. The Fifth Amendment reads, no one shall be compelled in any criminal case to be a witness against himself. Number seven, Jesus was not released when witnesses against him disagreed. The Bible very clearly during the trial of Caiaphas tells us that witnesses were disagreeing on what they were saying Jesus had done to deserve death. Once they disagree, the, the case is closed. Obviously, we don't have all the facts, so stop, we're done. But instead, though they are disagreeing among themselves, Jesus is still condemned. And finally, number eight, execution was carried out immediately, the same day, without allowing any time to find witnesses in support of the accused. The law would say you'd have to wait at least one week to carry out the execution because you have to let other people come and testify and defend the accused. So these are all terrible trials. We, we, we can put trials in quotation marks because these aren't real trials. They're all illegal. So the false witnesses are brought in before Caiaphas. This is where Caiaphas says, are you the Christ? Tell me plainly. And here's the problem. I just want to frame the problem because this will carry into Pilate's trials. The problem that Caiaphas has and the Sanhedrin have, they hate Jesus because Jesus claims to be king and God and is a blasphemer. But that's not a claim that Pilate's going to care anything about. If they say this man deserves to die, and Pilate says, tell me why, because remember the Jews aren't able, they're not under, under their law, they're not able to kill anybody under the laws of Rome given to them. They can't execute people. And so they have to get execution done by the Romans. So they have to take a charge to the Romans. In order to do that, it has to be a charge that Pilate will say that man's worthy of death. Blasphemy is not a charge that Rome cares about. Who cares if he blasphemes? He's not God. Caesar's God. That's stupid. You're dumb. Go away. So the very reason why the Jews want Jesus dead holds no power whatsoever before Rome. So Caiaphas has to get an accusation from Jesus that he can take to Rome, and that accusation is that Jesus claims to be Messiah. And so it's very interesting. If you read through the text, we don't have enough time to do it this morning, but if you read through the text, Caiaphas just starts by saying, are you the Christ? And Jesus will not answer. Because that's not all Jesus is. Jesus isn't just Messiah. He is Messiah and he is God. He is God come in the flesh. And so he waits and he waits and he waits. And finally, Caiaphas says, fine. Are you the Christ, the son of the living God? Are you the Christ and are you God? And that's when he says, it is as you have said. And you'll see the son of man coming with power on the clouds of heaven to judge you. You're trying me right now, Caiaphas, but I'm going to come back and judge you. So Caiaphas says, fine. I know blasphemy is why we want you dead. That's not going to work before Pilate. So let's get you to testify that you're Messiah, which Messiah just means anointed one. Who was anointed in the Old Testament? It was kings. Think of David being anointed by Samuel. So to be the anointed one means to be king. And if, if the Sanhedrin can take to Pilate the fact that Jesus has claimed to be Messiah, then they can say he's claimed to be king. That's the whole point of this second trial, okay? So first trial, placeholder before Annas. Second trial, get an accusation that we can take before Pilate, namely that Jesus claims to be a king. Once they get that, the third trial happens. The third trial happens. If you are in Mark still, you can see it. Mark chapter 15, verse 1. Luke actually gives us the most detail. Luke chapter 22, verses 66 through 71 about this third trial before the Sanhedrin. But Mark gives us the, the short detail of it. It's very fast because Caiaphas had already taken the time to get the accusation that Jesus claims to be the confession, that Jesus claims to be king. To take that before the Sanhedrin and say, you've heard it, let's make a verdict. So verse, uh, chapter 15, verse 1, early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders and the scribes and the whole council, that word council is Sanhedrin, 
immediately held a consultation, and binding Jesus, they led him away and delivered him to Pilate. That is the third trial. That's all it is. Let's hear the accusation. Luke 22 gives us more detail. Let's hear the accusation. What does he claim? He claims to be Messiah. Then let's kill him. Actually, they'd say he claims to be the God. Uh, it's blasphemy. Let's kill him. He's worthy of death. He's deserving of death. But notice, if you go back just a, uh, one paragraph in Mark chapter 14, verse 72, immediately a rooster crows. Peter remembers what Jesus had said, that before the, ro the rooster crows three times, you're going to deny me. And so the rooster crows. Peter remembers that, and he goes away weeping. But for our purposes, the chronology here is helpful. Roosters crow somewhere close to the sun coming up. Not identically. They're not waiting and looking, and when the sun comes up, hey, it's time, alarm clock, they crow. Um, in fact, I've been to places where roosters are crowing at like 2 in the morning. I'm like, what are you doing? Are you a blind rooster? Can you not see the sun? Like, go to sleep. But we have, for our purposes chronologically, roosters are crowing somewhere in the morning. And so some little tiny glimmer. I don't know if you've ever watched the sun rise in the morning. Not when you're actually seeing the sun, but when you're seeing the first rays get a little bit of a, of a different color than just black. That's when the religious leaders are going to say, hey, look, the sun is up. We can try him. And we can say this trial happened during the day. So that if the crowd gets on us for this, which they're going to, we can say, oh, he was tried during the day. Where were you? Sorry. We made the verdict and we, we carried out uh, justice during the day. And then they're going to take him to, to Rome after that. They're going to take him to Pilate. So the Sanhedrin, they're simply there to hear the accusation that Caiaphas has gotten and received from Jesus to agree that he's guilty, to condemn him to die, but their part stops right there. They can't do any more. They cannot carry out execution. Now, you might say, well, they stone people. They do. They stone people a lot. They stone Stephen, right? Acts chapter 8. They're going to kill uh, Stephen. But they do that because Stephen is kind of a nobody. They're able to kill with mob rule anybody that the crowd deems worthy of being killed. Yay, we're done. Wash our hands of this man. Good. But since they couldn't get the crowds on their side, they can't do that with Jesus. Stone Jesus to death, and they're going to have a mob on their hands going after them. So in order to get Jesus killed, they have to let somebody else do the killing. So that when the crowds say, why is he up there? They can say, well, Rome thought that he was worthy of death. Rome demanded his execution. That's why they have to take him to Pilate. Maybe somewhere around 4 a.m., right when that first line, light is beginning to dawn. So three Jewish trials, Annas buying time, Caiaphas getting some form of an accusation that he can take to the Sanhedrin, and then number three, Sanhedrin saying, here's our verdict, you're guilty, take him to Pilate. That then takes us to the three Roman trials, first before Pontius Pilate, second before Herod Antipas, and third before Pontius Pilate again. If you want to remember all the trials, Annas, Caiaphas, Sanhedrin, Pilate, Herod, Pilate. Broken up in half, three different Jewish, three Roman. Pilate's going to examine him. He's going to say that there's no guilt in this man. And John gives us the two trials before Pilate. So let's go back to John chapter 18. John chapter 18. Verse 28. So they led Jesus from Caiaphas into the Praetorium, which is the Roman Judgment Hall. And it was early. It's early in the morning. They themselves, the religious leaders, did not enter into the Praetorium so that they would not be defiled but might eat the Passover. This is unbelievable religious hypocrisy. The law of not being with Gentiles wasn't explicitly given in God's word. It was given in the Mishnah, which is man-made laws and traditions. But they got it, they made it, and they got it from the law that's in God's word that said you couldn't come into contact with a dead body or else you'd be unclean for seven days. And since the Gentiles don't care about that law, uh, the Jews were afraid that they might have touched a dead body, and therefore if the Jews touch a Gentile who had touched a dead body, then the Jews would be unclean. 
So they just said, let's not even go there, right? Let's not even go in. Let's not even touch anybody who maybe had touched a dead body. But here's the irony. They actually would have done far more to defile the Gentile courtroom than the Gentile courtroom would have defiled them. John Calvin wrote about these religious hypocrites. He says, these hypocrites, though they are full of malice, ambition, fraud, cruelty, and greed, that they almost infect heaven and earth with their abominable smell. They're just only afraid of external pollution. They don't care about the heart. They just care about external pollution. Don't get me dirty. Don't contaminate me. They don't care about the heart at all. So they take him before Pilate. We just see immense religious hypocrisy. Verse 29, therefore Pilate went out to them. A little bit about Pilate, you need to know he is originally from Spain. He became the governor in Israel only after he had joined the Roman legion and had married the granddaughter of Caesar Augustus. So he kind of married into this position. He held it only for 10 years, which is a short amount of time for a governor. He had several mess-ups with the Jewish people. He didn't like them. He didn't really care about them. He didn't like Israel. Nobody really wanted to be the governor uh, politically as a Roman governor over Israel. He put a, a, a Roman bust of Caesar in the temple, which that's not going to go over well for people who say this is the house of God and you are not to make any graven image, right? That goes against both the commandments that God has given. He stole money from the temple treasury to build an aqueduct of water from Galilee all the way down to Jerusalem. That aqueduct, by the way, is still there today. Strike number two. And then strike number three was he put shields with the image of Caesar on them surrounding the temple mount, surrounding the temple wall. And he put kind of poles with flags of Caesar's face on the temple. And when he, asked, or when he was asked by the Jews, please remove that because that's uh, treading on sacred territory. That's defiling our worship space. When he was asked to remove it, he said, no, I'm not going to. And if you want to do anything about it, you're going to be killed. And so there was a huge population of Jews, zealous Jews, that went up to the Temple Mount to try and uh, destroy these images. And they were killed by guards. So he doesn't have a very good track record with the Jewish people. They don't really like him that much. And all of these, by the way, all of these instances have gone back to Rome. Rome has heard Man, Pilate's not the best at keeping peace. That's his only job. Collect taxes and keep peace. That's all you need to do. Don't let riots break out and don't start riots, for goodness sake. And now, add to that, not only three strikes against him, but Tiberius, who is the Caesar in Rome, is very suspicious currently, uh, while Jesus is on trial, he is very suspicious of people that are conspiring against him to kill him and take his place as Caesar. There's one guy, namely, that he found out was trying to overthrow him. The guy's name is Sejanus, and Sejanus happens to be Pilate's best friend. And Sejanus was killed, and his whole family was killed, and his house was burned, and his you know, cattle were thrown off a cliff because he was conspiring against Caesar uh, to overthrow him. And so, Tiberius says to the entire Roman world, if you were a friend of Sejanus, I'm going to find you, and I'm going to make sure you aren't trying to kill me too. So Pilate has three strikes against him, and now he has this whole Sejanus issue hanging over his head that I'm best friends with this guy. I didn't want to overthrow Caesar, but, but i got to lay low. i got to make sure that Caesar doesn't hear about me at all. He's in a tough spot. He desperately wants to preserve his own job, not to mention his own life, but then he meets this Jesus, and he's absolutely taken aback. He will eventually end up killing Jesus to keep his job, and the irony is he ends up losing his job not even two years after the issue with Jesus. So you're fine to sin to keep what it is that you want, but sin always lies, and he loses what it is that he sinned in order to get. So Pilate... If you go back to chapter 18, verse 29, Pilate goes out and he says, what accusation do you bring against this man? And they answer, if this man were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him to you. This is a very interesting answer. I think what, what they're asking Pilate to do 
I think they're taken aback by Pilate's question. What is the accusation? And the reason why is because they were the ones that went to Pilate originally to say, Pilate, we're 600 men to arrest this guy. We're going we're gonna to try him with our own counsel, and then we're going to bring him before you, and we, we're going to ask that you would crucify him. He already knew this whole plan. So when they bring Jesus before him and say, all right, we did our end, you do your part, Pilate says, hey, I'm going to give him a fair trial. I'm going to give him a fair trial. So what's the accusation? And they're, they're asking, verse 30 in my translation would be, hey, man, play the game, right? Play the game. You, you, you knew what we were doing here, Pilate. If, if he wasn't an evildoer, we wouldn't be doing all of this. So Pilate's going to say, no, 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 I'm not just going to go play your game. I'm still in control here. You don't use me. I use you. And so Pilate is going to ask for details. And they're going to say, well, uh, this is Luke 23, verse 2. He misleads our nation. He forbids people to pay taxes to Caesar, which you guys know. Uh, Tuesday of the Passion Week, he actually says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Pay taxes to Caesar. And he makes himself out to be Christ, a king. That's going to be the issue. He claims to be king. So Pilate says, verse 31, well, you take him yourselves. Judge him according to your law. Which means, by the way, he's not worthy of death, right? Judge him according to your law. Well, they can't kill him, so do whatever you want to, but you can't kill him. He's not worthy of death. The Jews said, we're not permitted to put anybody to death. To fulfill the word of Jesus, which he spoke, signifying by what kind of death he was about to die. He's not going to die a mob death of being stoned in a back alley somewhere. He's going to die a lingering, cruel, public, and verifiable death on a cross. So therefore, verse 33, Pilate entered again into the praetorium, and he summons Jesus. And he asks him, are you the king of the Jews? Are you the king of the Jews? Now, this is a very ambiguous question. This is also a very dangerous question, because if the question is, Jesus, do you want to overthrow Rome? Jesus would say, no, that's not at all what I'm doing. I'm not a seditionist. But if the question is the Christ, the Messiah over Israel, then the answer is, yes, I am, but I'm not trying to overthrow Rome. So which is it? I think that's why Jesus is going to say, verse 34, are you saying this on your own initiative, or did others tell you about me? Who's asking this question, Pilate? Pilate, are you trying to get to the bottom of me being Messiah over the Jews, or did somebody tell you that I claimed to be a seditionist? Who's asking the question? That's what Jesus is saying. Who's asking Jesus is crystal clear. I'm not going to confess to something that's not true about who I am. And so Jesus asks a brilliant question. Let's clarify this. And verse 35, Pilate answers, I'm not a Jew. I don't care about you being Messiah. Your own nation, your chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? So the two questions that could have been on the table were either Messiah over Israel which Jesus would have said, yes, I am. Or a seditionist who's trying to incite treason and overthrow Rome, a political ruler, which Jesus would say, no, not at all. That's the charge that the religious leaders are bringing, right? Because they want him to die. He claims to be a seditionist. He claims to forbid us to pay taxes to Caesar. He claims to be king. But Pilate says, I'm not the one bringing the charge. I'm just telling you what they're telling me, that you're a seditionist. And so Jesus answers, verse 36, my kingdom's not of this world. I'm not a seditionist. Uh, okay, Pilate, we've clarified what question you're asking me, and I can clarify with you, no, I'm not that kind of a political ruler that you, the, the Jews think I am. Uh, they're claiming that I am. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting, so I would not be handed over to the Jews, but as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. This is, you know, an all-millennial favorite passage, right? My kingdom is not of this world. It's a spiritual, supernatural realm. That's not what Jesus is trying to defend. He's just answering Pilate, no, no, no. I'm not a king as a seditionist who's trying to overthrow Rome. That's not where my kingdom is. And so, Pilate says to him, so you are a king? You're not a seditionist, but you are Messiah, right? He, Jesus had, had him clarify, which are you asking? Are you asking if I'm Messiah, or are you asking if I'm a seditionist? Pilate says, well, they're saying you're a seditionist. And he goes, no, I'm not. And he goes, but you are a king because you have a kingdom. So you are Messiah. And he's going to answer, yes, you say correctly that I am. I've been born for this reason. And for this reason, I've come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Just look at the, the majesty of this whole passage. 
One thing that we learn from this section and really from the Gospels is never ask Jesus a question unless you're prepared to receive a question in response. And it's always going to be more penetrating and heart-wrenching than you could possibly imagine. And that's what Jesus is doing here. Pilate is putting Jesus on trial, but Jesus is the one who's in control interrogating Pilate. This is just the most beautiful scene of Jesus being in control. He's bound in chains, beaten, bloodied, and yet he is still in full control and authority of the situation. So, he says, everyone who hears, who is of the truth, hears my voice. Just like John 18, verse 37 says, my sheep hear my voice. Pilate says, what's truth? What even is true? What is the truth? What is truth at all? Finally, he asks a very good question and then ends the conversation. I don't, I don't know if this happens to you in relationships, but you're you know, waiting, you're, you're developing equity with somebody, you're asking a bunch of questions, and then you're able to ask a really good question of their heart, and they're like, hey, time's up, I gotta go. That's what happens here. Pilate, hey, what's truth? And I'm out. And he leaves. But Jesus is saying, I have come for this very reason. He clearly articulates, I'm not a seditionist, but I am the Messiah who has come to testify of the truth. Not intellectually, not giving you a formula. Truth is a person. He is the truth. I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So, middle of verse 38, when he had said this, he went out to the Jews, and he said to them, I find no guilt in him. I find no guilt in him. That's the first of five times that Pilate is going to say explicitly, I find no guilt. Pilate does not want Jesus to die. A lot of people have in their mind that Pilate is the villain in this story. Pilate's not the villain. Caiaphas is the villain. Pilate is, is a fortunately trapped man. He definitely does the wrong thing, yes. But I, I, just, I think that we think of him incorrectly. He desires to do the right thing. He wants to release Jesus. He knows Jesus is innocent. In fact, Peter says this in his sermon to the Jews in Acts chapter 3, verse 13. You wanted him dead when Pilate wanted him released. Pilate knew he was innocent, and yet you killed him. So, John's going to move into the Barabbas affair, but actually right in the middle there, between John 18, 38, and 39, all of Luke 23 happens, almost all of Luke 23 happens, which is the trial before Herod Antipas. So we've ended the first trial of Pilate, with Pilate saying, what even is truth? I don't even know what's going on here, man. And then he goes out and says, you're not, you're not guilty. Hey, everybody, he's not guilty. And that's where Luke 23 says that the religious leaders say, whoa, 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 if he weren't guilty, we wouldn't have brought him to you. Brought him to you because he's done terrible things. What things has he done? Well, he has been spreading lies from Galilee all the way to Jerusalem. And Pilate hears that word Galilee, and he goes, oh, this is a way to get rid of him. This is a way to get rid of my problem. He says, well, if he's a Galilean, send him to Herod, because Herod Antipas owns and rules over Galilee. Herod Antipas is the guy who uh, was called out for his sexual sin by John the Baptist and ended up having him beheaded. So send him to Herod. Now, again, even though Herod Antipas beheaded Jesus, or beheaded John the Baptist, Pilate knows they are not going to let Herod execute Jesus, right? They're not going to do that. They would have already killed him if they were going to do it that way. So Pilate knows if I send him to Herod and I say let Herod try him, Pilate's saying, I know he's walking away alive. He might be beat up. He might be, he might be whipped. He might be an outcast, but I know he's alive because Herod can't kill him. So that's another Im implied way that Pilate is going to release Jesus. Send him to Herod. And you guys remember the whole Herod Antipas affair? Herod's, you know, questioning him. You know, maybe he's asking him to do a miracle. Who knows? Uh, do this thing, walk on water. Who knows what's going on? But he's asking him some questions, wants to see a sign from him, wants to see something happen. And Jesus just stands there, makes no answer, gives no response. And Herod says, he might be crazy. He's not defending himself, but he's definitely not guilty of anything. And that's the end of the fifth trial, the second Roman trial, is Pilate sending Jesus to Herod Antipas. And Herod just goes, yes, yeah, and 
There's nothing wrong with this man. He might be crazy, but he's not guilty. That leads us to the third and final trial before Pilate. So again, the three Roman trials go Pilate, Herod, Pilate. First one with Pilate is in the Praetorium. Second one with Herod, uh, where Jesus makes no answer. And then Herod sends Jesus back to Pilate. This is where Pilate is going to desperately try as best that he can to get Jesus released. He's going to do it by beating him to a pulp. He's going to say, I will scourge him and then I'll send him to, to you, but I'm not going to crucify him. That's when he says, behold your king, behold the man. Haven't we done enough to this man? He's totally innocent. He's done nothing wrong. Haven't we done enough? He's trying to satisfy the crowds. He also pulls the whole Barabbas affair issue, right? He says, you have a custom. This is a, a genius ploy on Pilate's part. It was a custom during the week of Passover, Passover celebrating deliverance from your political oppressor. And so there was a custom that the Jews, the Jews wanted their uh, captured citizens to be happy. Just pay us taxes and don't fight against us, but just live a happy life. You can have your own fake political system, right? You can have your Herods, your kings. You can have your own religious system. We don't care. Be happy. Just pay taxes and don't fight against us. So they made this custom. We've got a whole prison filled with your people, your ethnic people that you love that we decide we don't like. And on one day a year, you can pick whoever you want to go free. Pick. Josephus gives us an understanding of this whole custom. Pick whoever you want. Pick your best friend. Pick whoever you want. Come before us during Passover. And kind of in celebration of your freedom from Egypt, we'll give you a little piece of, uh, a little piece of celebration from, from Rome, right? Uh, freedom from Rome. But here... Pilate switches it up a little bit. I love this. He's trying to release Jesus. So he says, you know what? You're not going to get to pick. I get to pick. And I'm only giving you two options, right? You can't pick everybody. I'm just giving you two options. I'm giving you Jesus, who has done nothing wrong and hurts no one. And I'm going to give you Barabbas, who is the worst of the worst people that I have in my prison. He picks the worst guy. We're told that he is a terrorist. He's a murderer, not just a a Jewish zealot who is killing Romans, but a Jewish zealot who is killing other Jews. Uh, there are possibilities in, in reading some historical biography accounts of uh, historically what was going on, that he was also a, a rapist, a child molester, a, a murderer. He's a terrible man. Nobody wants this guy wandering the streets anymore. And so Pilate goes, you only have one option. It's either, either of these guys. That's it, right? You, you only get this choice. I'm not, I'm not giving you other choices. You can't go up and down the halls in my prison and pick another guy. You get one choice. Who do you pick? And I think he's thinking at that moment, I did it. I got myself out of the situation because there's no way they're going to choose Barabbas. And I think he is dumbfounded when they start chanting Barabbas. Free Barabbas. Give us Barabbas. I think he is dumbfounded. What? what you want him over Jesus? Fine. That's when he's going to wash his hands and say, what, what, what has this man done, and what do I need to do to release him? What's going on? I'll beat him. That's not going to satisfy you? Fine, I'm done. But before that happens, before the end of that, that trial, I want to go to John 19, and we'll end our time here. John 19 is the third of the Roman trials, the last of the six trials before uh, Pontius Pilate. John chapter 19, verse 1. Pilate takes Jesus and scourges him. The soldiers twist together a crown of thorns. They put it on his head to mock him as king. They come up to him. They say, Hail, King of the Jews. They give him slaps in the face. Pilate came out again and said to them, Behold, I'm bringing him out to you so that you may know I don't find any guilt in him. Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns, the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. And when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify, crucify. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify. I don't find any guilt in this man. And they said, We have a law. By that law, he ought to die because he made himself out to be the son of God. Which again, Pilate couldn't care less that this man's blasphemed. But at the same time, he's wondering if that's true about Jesus. And when he hears that, he's even more afraid that he is going to be crucifying God himself. So... He brings him back into the praetorium, verse 9. He enters into the praetorium again, and he said to Jesus, Where are you from? 
But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said, and I want to be careful how we read these verses because I think you can read them antagonistically. You can read them angrily. I don't think they're read that way. I, maybe I'm a little too optimistic about Pilate, but I don't think he's mad at all. I think he says, why aren't you speaking to me? Give me something because I don't want you to die. I want you to be released. I know you're innocent. Give me anything. Don't you know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? I don't think he's saying, speak to me because I have authority over you. I think he's saying, your life, Jesus, hangs in my hands and I don't want you to die. So if you can give me anything, I will let you go. Jesus, equally so, I don't think he's being snarky here at all. I think he's actually being very compassionate. He says, verse 11, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above for this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. Now, there's a whole lot of commentaries that talk about this verse saying that the word above is heaven. I, I don't think that's the case. I don't think the verse makes sense. Read it that way. Uh, read it with me again. You would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from heaven. And for this reason, he who delivered me to you, which is Caiaphas and the religious leaders, has the greater sin. That makes no sense with heaven. For this reason, the motivation of Caiaphas having the greater sin, greater sin than heaven, heaven didn't have any sin in delivering. So heaven doesn't work for above for a number of reasons. I think it's just simply the, the people in chain of command above you, Rome. I, I think it's best read this way. You would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from Rome. They sent you on a mission as a governor over Israel. You didn't choose to be here. This is what Jesus is saying. Pilate, this isn't your fight. You didn't choose to be here. You, you don't want to be here. You don't want to kill me. You have no vendetta against me. You're only here because Rome sent you here. Therefore, now the therefore makes sense, right? For this reason. Therefore, you killing me, there's somebody who's done a greater sin than that. And that's the person who actually wants me dead. You don't want me dead. But Caiaphas does. So I think Pilate's saying, please give me something. Give me anything. Let me let you go free. And I think that's where Jesus, in great compassion, says, no, I have to die. And I want you to know, I know you don't want this. I know you don't want this. You don't want me dead. You wouldn't even want to be here if it weren't for the assignment given to you by Rome. So, after saying that, verse 12, as a result of this, Pilate made efforts to release him. As a result of this, as a result of the compassion that Jesus had for Pilate. Pilate just desperately wants this man to go free. And this is where the Jews play the Rome card, right? If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar because everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. And this is what's going to get to Pilate. This is what's going to get to him. Hey, hey, Pilate, the religious leaders are saying, hey, remember when you put the bust of Caesar in the temple? Remember when you stole from our temple treasury? Remember when you put the shields along the temple wall and you killed some of our own people? Hey, remember those things? And hey, remember that guy, Sejanus, who was your best friend who was killed? and is a traitor in Rome, and Tiberius is trying to go after anybody who knows him. Remember those guys? Hey, we'll make sure you're going to die. We'll make sure Caesar's going to know your name. In fact, we got some runners here that are going to get uh, on uh, a cruise to go over there to Rome now to tell them that you're not doing a good job. And when Caesar, when Tiberius hears your name, he's going to go, wait, so Janus, wait, you've messed up three times? You're, you're gone. This is the card they play. This is the card that's going to get Jesus killed. Therefore, when Pilate heard these words, verse 13, he sits down on the judgment seat, brings Jesus out, sits down. It was the day of preparation for the Passover, about the sixth hour, and he said to the Jews, Behold your king. Fine. He's your king. Behold him. They cried out, Away with him, away with him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? You want your king to die? And chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he handed him over to be crucified. He reluctantly does so. And he does so ultimately because of peer pressure. You realize that's the reason why our Savior died, peer pressure. Luke 23, 23, the crowd's voices prevailed. Pilate knew what was right. The crowds prevailed over what he knew to be right. And he succumbed to peer pressure. 
He had already used all of his coupons back in Rome. He knows he has no more options to be delivered from anybody coming after him. Can't have another riot. He's just trying to save his own skin at this point. And so he reluctantly delivers him over to be killed. But even as he does so, you remember what he wrote about him? He wrote that, that tablet that he's going to put on the cross. This is the king of the Jews. The religious leaders are going to say, take that down. We don't think he is. And he's going to say, what I've written, I've written. He is a king. We don't know what happened to Pilate. Again, optimistically, I, I would love to see him in heaven. I don't know. He knows that Jesus is the Son of God. He, he knew he was innocent. And yet peer pressure got to him. The crowds got to him, by the way. I don't think that these are the same crowds that were there on Palm Sunday. This is a whole uh, separate issue. The crowds on Palm Sunday, they loved Jesus. They worshiped him. They loved his interactions and in cleansing the temple on Monday. They loved him just destroying religious leaders on Tuesday. They loved him. That's why the religious leaders had to kill Jesus before the sun's coming up, before the crowds are out. So there is a crowd. I think that the crowd probably was brought by the religious leaders, maybe some Jewish zealots who would want Barabbas to be freed. Because again, if that crowd from Sunday, from the Palm Sunday triumphal entry, if that crowd had been there, they would not have said, give us Barabbas. They would have said, kill Barabbas. He's actually getting ready to be crucified that day. There's three crosses that are made that are ready to go. And it's supposed to be for Barabbas and his two friends. And yet Jesus is going to take that spot. I think most of the crowds are going to wake up hearing there's a riot going on, wondering what's happening, and they're going to run into Jesus on the road, carrying his cross and then giving it to Simon to carry his cross to be crucified. They weren't there. The same crowd that was there on Sunday morning, I don't believe is there on Friday morning. So let's wrap this up. Remember 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul told us, Told Timothy, press yourself into the mold of how Jesus responded to Pilate. How did Jesus handle himself before Pilate? He said four things. John 18, 34. Are you saying this on your own initiative or did others tell you about me? Let's clarify because I want to speak what's true. Secondly, John 18, verse 36. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. He testifies to the truth of who he is and the truth of who God is. John 18, 37, when Pilate asks, are you a king? He says, you say correctly that I am a king. For this reason I've been born. For this reason I've come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And the fourth statement, Jesus says, you would have no other authority over, no authority over me unless it had been given to you from Rome. For this reason he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. Four sayings gracious, truthful, clear, compassionate sayings. So let's learn from the way that Jesus handled himself before Pilate. Let's sum up these four statements. Number one, Jesus before Pilate was, number one, committed to the truth despite all the lies around him. He was committed to the truth despite all the lies around him. This is why sometimes he speaks and this is why sometimes he stays silent. He stays silent when there are just lies being thrown all over the place. But he speaks when there's truth trying to be found by Pilate. I'll help you. I'll lead you to truth. First, uh, First Peter chapter 2, verse 23. While being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And brothers and sisters, we can do the same thing. In this time when truth is hard to find and hard to come by and hard to stand for, we need to learn from Jesus to seek clarity with compassion and grace and to speak the truth winsomely. Number two, Jesus is committed to the Father's will even though it would cost him his life. Jesus is committed to the Father's will even though it would cost him his life. He says, it's for this reason that I came. You're trying to let me get off the hook here. You're trying to release me. But Pilate, I'm supposed to die. This is the whole point of me coming. So he desperately desires to fulfill the Father's will, even though it will cost him his life. What about you? This is why Paul tells Timothy, listen to what Jesus did before Pilate, because that will help you finish your ministry well. 
you're going to be faced with the question, do I follow Christ or do I keep my life? And Paul tells Timothy, listen to Jesus and follow his example. Be so committed to the Father's will, even though it might cost you your life. And maybe for us it won't, but it might cost you your friendships. It might cost you your job. It might cost you relationships and your family. Are you committed to the Father's will, even though it would cost you everything? Finally, number three, are you committed to loving all around you, just like Jesus? Jesus was committed to loving everyone who was around him, even though they might be his enemies. He's committing to loving Pilate, even though Pilate's going to kill him. He's committed to loving. On the cross, he's going to say, Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. Jesus had a genuine heart of love for the people around him. This is why Paul tells Timothy, looking at Jesus during his trials will affect the way you live your life every day. So I would say to you, Christ Bible Church, speak the truth, defend the truth, even though there are those around you that are spreading false doctrine or saying all kinds of evil against you. Stay committed to the truth. Don't defend yourself. Just teach what is true. I would say to you, stay committed to the Father's will, even though it might cost your life, it might cost you uh, everything. Guess what? It cost our Lord his life. But stay faithful. Fight the good fight of doing the Father's will and don't let anything or anyone distract you from that. In Christ Bible Church, love everyone around you with grace, even those, especially those who are your opponents. Love them with grace and kindness. We can do that because we've been shown the grace of Jesus Christ, who has taken our place. As we end our time this morning, we're going to sing, but before we do, I, I want us to just remember the substitutionary atonement of Christ in our place. I think there's just no better picture in this Passion Week, other than the cross itself, of the substitutionary atonement of Christ than that of the story of Barabbas. Just think about being Barabbas. Put yourself in Barabbas's sandals. You are in prison, you're in a jail cell, and you are just awaiting, shackled up in this dirty jail cell, you're awaiting your own execution. You don't know when it's going to be, but you know the day is drawing near, and you know you totally deserve it. You can look in the rearview mirror of your life and realize you have done despicable things. And you have finally been caught and finally are going to get what you deserve. You just don't know when it's going to be. And then one Friday morning, you are woken up as you're lying on that hard slab of rock. You're woken up to crowds outside of your jail cell that are yelling for Pilate. You don't hear what Pilate's saying. You just hear what the crowd's yelling. And you hear the crowd yelling, crucify, crucify. And you think, well, this must be it. I don't know what's going on, but they must want my life. And, and you hear the crowds yelling, give us Barabbas, give us Barabbas. And you think, this is it, this is the day. And sure enough, as you're wondering, is this really going to be the day that I am crucified? Which you are dreading because crucifixion is so agonizingly awful. And you hear Roman soldiers walking down their sword clanging against their armor and you hear their keys jingling in their hands and they walk up to your jail cell and they open it up they you know yell at you get up they treat you harshly as they move you to the praetorium hall and you think this is it you're being led out to the crowds who are crying out give us barabbas crucify him give us barabbas crucify him and then as you stand before the crowds thinking, this is it. The soldier unshackles you and says, you're free to go. And you say, what? Dumbfounded. What? I'm, I'm released? Why am I released? And the soldier says, Pilate gave him an option. Your, your custom, your Jewish custom, it's either you or this man over here. And they are asking for you to be released. They want to kill this man. And you think, man, I can think of all the things I've done. This guy must have done awful things. And you ask the soldier, what, what did he do? What did he do? They want him to die and not me. And then the man looks at you and says, Pilate has found nothing wrong with this man. And I like to think in my own sanctified imagination that as Barabbas is leaving. He has to walk down these steps. He sees Pilate, who hates him. I'm letting a criminal go. 
And he looks into Jesus' eyes and he sees the man who is literally taking his cross. Brothers and sisters, that'll change your life forever. And tradition says that it did. Tradition tells us that he got saved. We don't know if that's true. It's not in the Bible. But tradition tells us that he got saved. He stares into the eyes of the one who loved him and gave himself for Barabbas, quite literally dying in his place. That's exactly what our Savior did for you and for me. He says, I will take your death. Not because you deserve it. You deserve it. But I'll take it so that you can go free. And my friends, if the Son has set you free this morning, then you are free indeed. So let us live that way this morning, thanking the Lord, looking into those eyes that would say to you today, I love you so much that I will take your place, willingly, gladly, to give you freedom and life. Father, we thank you so much for your word that gives us such a detailed account of these trials. We've only scratched the surface of them, and we are so grateful for the way that we see Jesus on display before Pilate and the way that he's so loving and gracious, the way he's committed to the truth, and ultimately the way that he takes Barabbas' place. God, we are all Barabbas, deserving of crucifixion, deserving of the worst death imaginable. And you, because of your love, took our place, took our penalty. And all we can say is, Jesus, thank you for doing that. We love you. We ask that you would receive our praise now from hearts that are filled with gratefulness and gratitude for who you are and for what you've done. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Please stand with us. We'll sing All Glory Be to Christ. <laughs>